From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers. It's May 11th, 2016. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today we're sharing a fascinating conversation with Jim Jarmusch from 2014, when the director joined us for a repertory screening of his 1995 arthouse western, Dead Man, starring Johnny Depp. Jarmish has two films premiering at this year's Cannes Film Festival, Gimme Danger, a documentary about Iggy Pop, and Patterson, starring Adam Driver as a blue-collar New Jersey bus driver. His conversation from 2014 was moderated by the Film Society's Director of Programming, Dennis Lim. But before that, we'll go to a press conference that followed the U.S. premiere of The Lobster from last year's New York Film Festival. The latest from acclaimed Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos stars Colin Farrell, Rachel Weiss, Leia Seydoux, and John C. Riley as residents in a dystopian society where single people are sent to a retreat and must find a mate within 45 days, or else they'll be transformed into an animal. The surreal comedy was a favorite on the festival circuit and opens for a theatrical run this weekend. Before its NYFF premiere, Lanthimos and star Ariane Labed joined selection committee member Gavin Smith to discuss the film at a press conference. Let's go to that now. Um, I, I often start my Q&As with the question, uh, what inspired your movie? But um, in this case, it really has to start with that question. <laughs> yes. Um, and I never know what to say because people ask me that. Um, it's 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 a process every time, and uh, I've written these my last three films with Ephthemis Filippou, who's a very good friend, and every time we 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 finish a film, and at, even when we're at the editing process of the previous film, we just start discussing what it is that we're interested in, things that we've observed around us, uh, themes, conditions, situations. Um, and it starts from a little thing, you know, so this time we, we wanted to do something about relationships um, and, and how people uh, are, are so much under pressure in being successful in that domain and how other people view them and how they make them feel or uh, how much pressure we, we put on ourselves uh, for doing what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and I guess because we, we, we're not really interested in just representing, you know, reality on film. We always try to structure a world that has a particular, uh, that has particular rules that can, can lead us um, in a situation where we can, we, we can explore this theme that we're interested in under extreme conditions and reveal the absurdity of what of our everyday lives and how ridiculous it might be and how horrible and how wonderful and whatever there is there to find out this is the most kind of expansive for um exercise of this kind. I mean, in, in your other films, it's been a smaller world and, more, and, a, and maybe a, sm a smaller area of um, exploration. Here, you have actually two worlds, one world which suggests the other. And I'm interested in how 
um, which came first, the, the hotel? Did the hotel then suggest the idea of the loners in the forest or perhaps vice versa? I think we, start, we started with the idea of the hotel, the, uh, just the basic idea of when, when, you're, when you become single, you have to go to a hotel and find someone. Um, and then we started coming up with all the rules, the restrictions, the pressure that it has to be uh, a certain amount of time. If you don't make it, what happens to you then? And then it's just, it's funny, but it's, it's, it, we just follow logic, really. After we set up the, 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 the premise, it's, okay, so what would these people, what would the leadership of this world do if, you know, they wanted to present, for instance, uh, the, the, uh, what happens to the losers? How, what, how could they do it in a way that it, seems also a little bit positive instead of just you know getting rid of them and you know killing them or whatever so that's how we arrived to the idea of them becoming animals because it has kind of a positive side to it as well um, what about the loners though how do um, where yeah they have their own set of rules there is in a way as authoritarian as as the yeah. as the uh, the hotel so it, it just when we constructed that whole idea about single people from the city going to a hotel to find someone, um, it, it, it seemed that it, the, the world wasn't complete, that there would be other people that wanted to live differently and have, had, have different ideas, that they would rebel against this kind of system. Um, and we were interested in showing that part of it as well. And we decided that it, it, it does belong in this film because we were also interested in the irony of someone who uh, tries to escape a certain kind of system uh, and kind of manages to do that or rebel against that system, in the end constructs another one which is slightly different but essentially very similar. So I'm, I, I'm, I was quite interested in that. Ariane, is your character, do you see your character as a loner? She's an anomaly within the film. She isn't uh, in a situation where she has to be with somebody else. Um, at the same time, she's, uh, is she someone that's a loner that's infiltrated the system or is she a third kind of person? Um, I think she's, um, she's kind of following something else and she's trying to please somebody. So she's doing, th doing all, everything she's doing for a purpose. And um, so it's kind of another rule, because I think she's doing that for the loner leader somehow. Um, so it, for me, it's a kind of little love story behind everything. Uh, but she doesn't really have a, a belief like that. She's just ready to, to be a spy and to go to put herself in danger just because she found a kind of reason to a cause or something like that through this other woman. But within the, uh, within the world of the hotel, she's not connected to anybody else the way the hotel manager has a partner. And um, I wondered if there was somebody else that was maybe implied that she's, who is the other half of uh, her other half. She, she's married with a dentist. 
there is a brief scene, a small scene where I say that I, the way I killed him. So there is something about, she might, I mean, because she's working in the hotel, she must have somebody. So she's married or engaged with somebody, for sure. If not, she would be an animal. Um, this is maybe a question for both of you, but I was curious about um, what the purpose was of the um, lap dancing that we that you <laughs> that you do in several scenes. You didn't get what the purpose was. Well, I mean, <laughs> all right. Put it another way. What what was the meaning? Uh, well. For us, it was just uh, a way to have uh, all those residents really excited all the time, so in order for and frustrated, so in order for them to f to uh, find someone as soon as possible to motivate them, to, yeah, and and relieve themselves somehow. Okay, well, um, questions out there? I'm sure there are many. Yes, yes, you, yes. Um, hello, Tessany. Okay, so I think this is actually probably the realistic portrayal of love and romance that I've seen in many years, so congratulations. I actually have two questions. Number one, um, working with American actors the first time, were there any specific restrictions or freedoms that affected your choices? And then my second one's actually from a friend. Um, he asked, what does ambiguity have to offer an ending that doesn't make it feel like a non-conclusion? Um, okay, two questions. One, what was it like to work uh, with English language actors for the first time? Uh, did that present any problems or any uh, opportunities? And secondly, um, the question was about the ending and um, what, what does uh, uh, ambiguity um, at the end suggest or is it non-completion? Yeah. Um well, yeah, the, the actors were from all around the world, really. Uh, Irish, British, American, um, French, Greek. Uh, so, and um, it, it was just, uh, it, was, it's, it was a great opportunity for me making my first English language film to just work with people, you know, where, wherever they, 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 they were coming from. You know, it was just... Uh, a matter of finding those people that li that I'd like to work with, and uh, figuring out, you know, if they could fit somewhere within this world. So it was a great opportunity. Um, I was quite nervous in the beginning because I, most of them I didn't really know, and I had just met a couple of times, uh, and I didn't know, you know, how it was gonna go down and we didn't we didn't have much time to rehearse before we we started filming because um, again you know we couldn't bring all those actors from all around the world early enough so uh, but but it worked you know fine in the end all of them understood the material really well they were aware of my work uh, they were extremely committed and um, they had great chemistry, which is, I guess, you know, chance and luck as well, because you're not sure about that beforehand. So it, yeah, it, it worked really well. Um, and the ambiguity of the ending, um, I, I just, I just don't think there is any other way for me to end this film or with a certain kind of ambigu ambiguity in any of the films that I've done so far because 
mainly what what we do is raise questions about many things so uh and i i don't want to just finish a film by giving a very specific narrow answer uh to all of those questions uh so that that's i think how it works for this in a well. sense if the film had ended with him gouging out his eyes that would have been an affirmation of love and if he had instead walked away and left her there it would have been a denial of love yeah exactly so i think there's also a third version and they might find another way to yeah. be together and, and not follow the rules of the town of the this other world and whatever anyone else can you know come up with because it, it, some you know when people are very engaged uh with films and if you manage to to structure the film that is open enough for the audience members to um to engage but with their personal um experiences and background and education and cultural uh differences or whatever you 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 hear things that are quite extraordinary or you know sometimes people even see things in the film that are not really there uh in order for them you know to justify what it is that they think actually happened or is going to happen and that's quite interesting to to see uh yes in the back towards the back nearly in the back yeah you yeah oh okay sorry keep forgetting that we have these mics thank you uh perhaps this goes hand in hand with the kind of authoritarian aspect of the of the society but could you talk a little bit about how like almost everyone in the film is infantilized in some way like everyone is so childish especially like this kind of uh, obsession about your defining characteristic like the short-sightedness or the or like the limping and like that's the only way you can be together with somebody like that's what i was most struck uh, about like how society itself was so infantilized um so i i, I guess that's that's again one of those um ways that we find in order to push things and you know like play with what happens in reality that you know you you do find superficial ways of uh justifying uh why you you make certain choices why you feel like you can approach someone be with someone leave someone um and you know pushing that to to those kind of extremes that there's actually you know legislation that says you know there this needs to happen in order for these people to be together uh just enhances that whole process uh, an idea of what we're going through uh in order to uh try and be in a relationship or get away uh or get out of a relationship but do you, to kind of follow up on his question do you, do you feel that that a world in which there are so many rules and so many obligations does reduce its its population to an infantile state well some of them for sure uh you always find the ones that are 
um, questioning things, uh, and that's where you know the hope is, I guess. Um, but but the interesting thing is to observe that people in this film, but in in reality as well, follow completely absurd rules, and nobody. You know, the, you get used to it. You you're educated in a certain way, um, and you know many years can go by, and you know people just don't question. It's like that's how it's done, and that's the way it is. And you know, if you distance yourself from it, and I guess we're trying to have that distance by, like I said, you know, pushing things to extreme. Uh, when you distance yourself, you you can realize how absurd some of the things that we consider normal are. Thank you for an exceptional film. I'm still trying to get my mind around. I mean, it's politically and structurally, it's one of the most exciting things I've seen in a while. And I, I have, I, I guess you would call it a technical question, but in the way that these are established, the hotel society is very, it's very established. It's very bureaucratic. Even their cruelties when they, when they burn uh, John C. Riley's character's hand is meant so that he can't touch himself anymore. So he'll be f more inclined to follow their rules and find a mate. Whereas with the loners, it seemed to me that while there may have been loners in the woods for however long there's been a hotel, it seemed to me that the structure that had been imposed on them by their leader is very much coming from her character. That so much is a rebellion against the values of her parents. Um, uh, just the, the, the thing that struck me is, oh, we only listen to electronic music, you know, because she's rebelling against uh, the parents' classical music playing. Um, and I, I don't know if that's anything, but it just struck me as the idea of like, you know, w w is that something that you saw that, you know, as long as there's been a hotel, there's always been loners uh, battling against each other? Or is this, is this vision of this leader character shaping them into something different? Yes. Yeah, so, um, for example, what you just said that she's rebelling against her parents because they play classical music and the loners only dance to electronic music that never crossed our minds <laughs> um, but but that's great i mean because you know there's all these things that it, it might have been there it might have been you know unconsciously there you know the the choice uh, when you have to make a choice as a filmmaker so what do the their parents what kind of music do do, do they play and you go classical and then you've written something like electronic music for the forest and the loners that initially came just because you know electronic music it's easier to dance by yourself and it's not romantic and you don't need you know to pair with someone that's where it comes from but then you know you can connect it with another choice that we've made somewhere else and that's great and it might be true it, it might be it might not be true i mean definitely we hadn't thought of it um but do you see her leadership and and her uh, and uh, her her roles? Are they are they specifically being coming from her, or is there a kind of a many communities of loners who all share the same values? Yes, I, I, I don't know. Uh, but again, you know the the way he saw it. I mean, I'm I'm open to you know listening to that. And um, f for us, we we try and you know, be as much precise as we can with what we're showing. 
And beyond that, I mean, you can ask a million questions like, are there like thousands of hotels around the country? Are there many cities? Is, is it the whole world? I mean, there's, there's clues there that you can go either way and you can, and that's what excites me in, in films that are constructed in this way, that you can then think about it and, you know, imagine a, a bigger world and how it works and, and I don't know where it's coming from, the fact that, you know, uh, the gentleman thinks that it's coming from her character, uh, possibly because, you know, the hotel is more of a, uh, more of an institution and more of what we've used as an institution. You know, there's a building, there's people that work for, there's a more formal uh, form in there, while in the forest, uh, it's it's uh, even visually it's it's more difficult to to uh, get that. So I guess most of the weight falls on her to be the institution. So I think that's why. But again, it wasn't our intention to say, you know, that what happens here is just because of her. Uh, hi, I just wanted to ask about um, how you worked with the actors because it seems like there's a very interesting approach to performance where uh, no one feels quite convincing in what they say as if they're playing at being a person at what they think someone should that? say. No, 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 it's no. a question about how you work with the actors. There's a very sort of specific performance style that's, that's, that kind of crosses through all of these different performers and it's something that Ariane can talk about as well. Um, there is a very distinct style uh, and a way of delivery, a kind of register in which everybody speaks. And you mentioned that you didn't really have much time to rehearse, so how did you impose that? I don't know, really. I, it's, it's strange. I guess some of it starts from the text itself. It's, I think it's quite particular, uh, the tone uh, of the dialogue. Um, and you know, when the actors get it, they, they, they do it. Um, another thing is that w we try not to overanalyze how it should be done. Uh, and we just work practically and trying things and doing things and then tweaking them or changing them. Um, but yeah, maybe Ariane can speak more about it because I'm, you know, I don't know how I do it. You know. I don't know either, actually. But if I mean, it's sure it's mainly from the text and the rhythm of the text. If you follow it, it's just exactly I think um, what you're searching for. And then I think you always try to make sure that we are lost, lost enough to not, you know, not being self-conscious. So we kind of just follow this text and without exactly knowing what we're doing. And I think it kind of gives this rhythm and this, uh, I don't know what it is, but it's kind of natural. But I do understand that you put um, the actors, you make sure that we don't exactly know what's going on. Yeah, we <laughs> that's how we do it. We make sure that they don't know what's going on. <laughs> No, but it's, it's, it's true because uh, I guess what it is behind it is that um, there's this, uh, when an actor, you know, has something very particular in mind about what the scene is about and how he's going to do it and what every 
line means and you know why the character says that and all those sort of things F for me I, I can see right through it what he's doing and it becomes quite narrow and then you know the scene or or the moment doesn't re resonate you know beyond that and it's it's you know it's very obvious uh, uh what happens so yes i think there's a there's an effort to although it might appear stylized to to approach reality like like it is because we don't really know you know we haven't thought of before what we're going to say and how we're going to say it and why we're saying that thing. So as much as you can keep the actors, you know, just doing it instead of, you know, having a very particular uh, plan uh, about how they're going to do it, I think you can get more to the truth of it. I'd like to ask a question about your vision and the writer's vision of how the gender is used in the film, not the performances, but just how you see the gender in the film, because I found that one of the most fascinating parts of the film. Uh, it's a question about the, the I guess, uh, the role of gender in the film, um, uh, not in the performances per se, but just a, as, a, as a theme, I guess, in the film. Um, I mean, I, I don't know, that's quite, general um, well one thing we try to do is have women being more authoritative this time than because everybody was asking in the previous films you know why are men authoritative and they're mean to women and women rebel against them so I said now the women are going to be authoritative and so that was a choice um, but I don't know we just try to to you know to cover as much as possible uh, various situations and uh, variations of you know what happens in relationships. Well, there's the the heartless woman as well. I mean, maybe yeah. normally we would think of a heartless man, but yeah. she's a very striking character. Yeah, but yeah, but there's there's all sorts of different characters. I think there's heartless woman. There's the hotel manager and loner leader that are very strong, quite violent, authoritative women, but there's short-sighted woman who's, you know, the opposite. You know, there's biscuit woman, there's the maid, there's... This is how the characters are referred yeah. to. Yeah. Okay, we have time for one last question. Um, you over there? So we've covered the whole room. Either. <laughs> Both. Okay. At the same time. Uh, I was just wondering what animal you would like to be. Good question. Yeah, well, uh, it's easy. I, I always say that I'd like to be some kind of bird. Just, you know, fly around. Because you're a free spirit. I just like flying. I don't know. <laughs> How about you, Ariane? Uh, I'd like to be a cat. Cat. Okay, Yorgos, Ariane, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi there, this is Alison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theatre is turning 25 this year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theatre in New York. Manola Dargis of the New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. 
In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long overdue renovations that will make this great theater even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16mm projectors, updated lighting and sound systems, and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the Walter Reed will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org slash WRT25. Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man tells the story of an accountant named William Blake on a dreamlike journey into the spiritual realm. The deliberately paced, meandering film, shot in high contrast black and white, divided critics when it was released. With Roger Ebert writing, Jim Jarmusch is trying to get at something here, and I don't have a clue what it is. Since then, however, the film has become a cult classic, with Slant Magazine writing in 2005 that it is likely Jim Jarmusch's most stunning achievement. During our full career retrospective in 2014, Jarmusch joined Dennis Lim to look back on the film nearly 20 years later. Let's go now to their conversation. So Jim, thank you for being here. Um, I said in, in, in the introduction that you're not a fan of retrospectives and you're generally not a nostalgic person, So, but we appreciate you being here to talk about a film you made nearly 20 years ago. Thanks, thanks for having me. I'm not against retrospectives as long as it's not my own work. So. <laughs> but thank you all for coming, thanks so much. And so. thanks for having this retrospective, I, I'm really very honored. I'll start with a, just a couple of questions for you about um, Dead Man, and as you can see we have a full house who have, I'm sure have a lot of questions. Um, this is a film that um, was, I think it's now, it, some people regard this as your greatest film, your masterpiece. Um, it, it's also a film that sort of had a difficult life at the beginning, um, but it's had an interesting and really enduring afterlife. Um, did you sort of anticipate having that this film would have this kind of legacy? No, certainly not. I was just happy we could make the thing. It was really uh, very difficult to finance. Uh, was very difficult to shoot a film where we traveled all over from all over Arizona into Nevada to Southern California into Oregon um, shooting uh, a film that's all period where you can't see a road or a telephone pole or an airplane or a car so it was very difficult it was just a rough film to make and uh, we could never get the financing the film really required because I insisted it, that it would be black and white. So um, it was just quite a rough experience, but a very, very positive one. Um, but it really was difficult. So I'm very proud of the film, and I, I haven't seen it since 1996. But that's just the way I don't look at my films again once I have seen them with a, an audience and, and it's not at a film festival and the audience doesn't know I'm there and I watch my films once like that and then that's it for me. So my memory's probably pretty hazy on the film itself. And also I have a stronger memory usually of the experience of making the films than what the hell is in them in the end. So. Anyway, forgive me if I don't remember. 
a lot of things about the film, but I, I have a pretty good memory of it. The, the film is often described as a, a, a neo-Western or revisionist Western, and I think there are some ways in which it, it, it inverts the conventions of a Western. Um, the character, for instance, is he's very passive, which you tend not to see um, in protagonists of Westerns, and the use of landscape is also very different, I think, than a typical Western. Were you thinking very consciously in terms of inverting these Western conventions? Well, I was interested in the Western as I am with any kind of genre that I might approach. I'm interested in them as a kind of frame within which you can kind of do whatever you want. So um, there are a lot of unconventional, uh, unconventional Westerns which were very inspiring to me. So I, and there were Westerns, there are Westerns where landscape is incredibly important or unusual, like, say, The Big Sky of Howard Hawks is quite unusual. It's more kind of a mountain man movie in a way. But I was also, you know, I love Westerns that are unusual, like, uh, well, there are some very almost Brechtian Westerns, like Fritz Lang's Rancho Notorious, or certainly um, Nick Ray's Johnny Guitar. Um, and then there are just interesting, odd Westerns by Monty Hellman and Sam Peckinpah, but also uh, Sam Fuller's 40 Guns, or films like uh, Blood on the Moon, um, some Bud Bedecker films are somewhat unusual. So I don't know, the genre contains a lot of n not real formulaic um, examples already mm -hmm. that I was drawn to. I'm not a big uh, John Ford fan, I must say, although he has a very elegant, beautiful way of constructing a film. But what the films contain have always been problematic for me, especially I have a strong, uh, strong feelings for a kind of a an Aboriginal culture, Native American culture, that um, I find very uh, insulted by a lot of Ford's films, except for Cheyenne Autumn, maybe an exception, but, but wh what am I talking about? I, I digressed somewhere. But. Uh, let's take some questions from the audience. The question is about uh, Neil Young's electric guitar score, um, which was recorded in a somewhat unconventional way, right? You played him the film and he responded yeah, to it? Yeah, well I approached, I wanted Neil to ask Neil Young to make the music for the film, and I'm, uh, I've been a bi I'd been a big fan of Neil Young's music, but most particularly his uh, electric guitar playing and his work with Crazy Horse, um, his band, uh, which is his more wild side of Neil's music. So I finally was able to get in touch with Neil and uh, at one point, we were shooting the film, actually, in Arizona, and Crazy Horse was playing, and we had uh, a weekend or one day off, I don't know, but I was able to get a lot of tickets for the crew to go to see Crazy Horse, and I also was able to get to meet Neil afterwards briefly through a very labyrinthine connection. So I got to go up to Neil afterwards, and he said, yeah, yeah, I heard you wanted to talk about your film. Are, have you finished it yet? And I said, no, we're still shooting it. And he said, well, I don't plan anything. So here's what you do. Uh, when you have a rough cut of the film, you know, send it to me, and I'll get back to you uh, very soon, I promise you. But I, I don't know, uh, reading a script, I, I don't know, it doesn't mean anything to me. 
So when I had a rough cut of the film, I sent it to Neil, and like two, three days later, Neil Young calls me and says, hey, man, I, I like this film. Can you fly out here tomorrow, and uh, you can stay on my ranch, and we'll talk about it? Which I, of course, did immediately. And, uh, and, he fir and I said, I, I referenced a film. Um, I, I'm not a huge Eric Clapton fan, although I, I have respect for him, but it's not really, he's not one of my favorite guitarists. But he did a beautiful thing for Stephen Freer's film called The Hit, where he pretty much scored the film with one electric guitar. And I mentioned this to Neil. I thought it was very beautiful. And would Neil consider scoring our film alone with an electric guitar? And he said, well, I, I don't know. I was thinking of getting, uh, Kurt Cobain was gone. And he said he was thinking of asking the other two, uh, Dave and Chris from Nirvana, to make a score with him. And he said, what do you think about that? And I. I said, I'll tell you tomorrow. I, I'm not sure, it sounds interesting. And then the next morning we talked again and I said, well, that's a great idea. And he said, no, no, you know, I like your idea better. I'd like to do it by myself. <laughs> so then we recorded the film, uh, to the film in San Francisco in a warehouse. We converted it to a recording studio with a remote truck outside and, and Neil played two a rough cut of the film, responding to it emotionally. And he had some themes, there are only a few, but he, which he had already, play, had already played me, and I said, these are great, you know? So anyway, that's kind of how the score was made. I, I could go on and on with a lot of details and, and anecdotes about Neil but, uh, and working with him, but... Uh, you should give us one. Well, okay, one, one was, he's, he's recording to the film with dialogue, and he said, I need to hear the dialogue in your rough cut while I'm playing. So I said, but Neil, that might bleed through, you know, you, we're going to record. I, what if I change the edit? This isn't the final cut of the film. And he said, yeah, yeah, don't worry about that. And he left the room. And then I went in a corner with Jay Rabinowitz, the editor. We were both there. And I was saying, Jay, this is fucked up, you know. Neil says he's, you know, it won't bleed through, but he's playing to the track, and you hear their voices, and if I make any edits later, you know, the film's, the music won't rest where it was, and it'll be a disaster. And Jay's like, yeah, yeah, this is complicated. I don't know. He seems so adamant. And we're talking. Suddenly, Neil walks up to us. He looks at right in the eye in both of us and says, hey, man, I was out in the truck. Do you guys realize we have about 200 microphones in this room? <laughs> I was just listening to all you guys were saying, and I'm gonna have to say again, don't worry about it, man. It's gonna work. And we're like, okay, all right. So anyway, he was listening to our conversation, but you cannot trick Neil Young. Don't even try, don't try, trust me. He's way ahead of all of us, so. Yes. The question is about uh, the significance of uh, Blake, William Blake. Um, while I was writing the script and holed up in a little shed in the Catskills, um, I was reading what I could of so-called Native American literature, right? So I'm reading all these books, uh, whatever I could find in the voice of Native Americans. And I thought, okay, I just need to kind of erase all this for a minute. 
I think I'll read something else and put this away. I'm a big William Blake fan. I pick up uh, some Blake. I'm reading Blake, and I can't believe that it sounds, some of it, like Native American aphorisms, like uh, expect poison from standing water, or little things. This were, these were from Blake. And it just like opened my brain up to like, wow, he wants to be in the film, you know? <laughs> so he entered the film, and then William Blake became a part of the film. But it really happened like that. It wasn't something I decided. Um, I, I saw a beautiful Q&A here during the New York Film Festival with uh, a film director I love, Claire Denis from France, and someone was asking her, I don't know if it was you, Dennis, no. Anyway, Someone in the audience asked her, why did you kill so-and-so during the film, her new film, Bastards? And she said, I didn't kill him. The other character killed him. Why do you make me a murderer? I don't do this, you know? So, but I understood completely because a lot of times when I'm writing, it, I'm just sort of uh, writing down things I hear the character say, and I really don't believe it came from me, you know? And William Blake, he entered the film. It wasn't a thing where I, I now I will put, and the, he shall be called William Blake, and we will, we will quote William Blake. It really was because William Blake wanted me to put him in the film somehow, you know. I believe that. This question asked, what is the significance of the fades to black in the film? Well, actually, it's funny because the script that I hope to shoot maybe in the next year or so does have some of that again. Um, I don't know. I, I, it was part of a necessity that became uh, formal or part of the form of Stranger Than Paradise because it was a film I made where I, we only had enough film material to basically do one or two takes of every scene. So the scenes themselves were designed to be in a single setup. So a single camera position or take isn't the right word, but uh, so in order to cut them together, it seemed like it needed a kind of uh, respiration or something rhythmically, and it needed to, the image needed to be removed from you from a moment before a new image was put in your head. So it seemed to work very well in that film, and then I kind of uh, became, you know, I, I like using that, so it it's, I guess, I forget, in, yeah, it's, it's in Dead Man, yeah, sure it is, yeah. He just said it was. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's a kind of a rhythmic thing for me to remove the image for, for a moment and then, and then before delivering the next one. It's like breathing, it's helpful sometimes. Uh, basically, do you write with um, actors in, in mind? Do you write your characters with actors in mind? I try to write with all the central characters with already an actor that I would like to imagine being in the, that character, and I've been very lucky to usually almost always get them. So I've been very lucky, but I really try to think of an actor that I could collaborate with, but that I can imagine embodying this character. So I try very hard to have the actor already in mind. And, and not, at least for all the central characters, for sure. And in this case, I had seen Gary Farmer in a few things, and I wanted Gary Farmer, and I wrote this for Gary Farmer. 
And then I called, I got a number to call Gary Farmer. He lived up in Canada, way off the grid in the middle of nowhere. And I said, I, I'm, I'm, you know, Jim Jarmusch. I don't, you don't know me, but I, I, I know your work. I wanted to send you this script that I wrote and see if you'd be interested. And he said, eh, you know, I don't like reading scripts, man. I'll tell you what, why don't you come up here and tell me the story? <laughs> I'm like, um, okay, what do I do? Okay, you fly to Toronto, then you gotta rent a car and drive four hours and the blah, 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 you know? So I get the instructions, like, well, when can I come? I don't know, whenever you want. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna come the day after tomorrow, I'm gonna get there, I'll call you. So, well, okay, if you don't get me by phone, though, just drive here, I'll be out in the woods, or you'll find me, you know? So I go, I find Gary Farmer in the middle of nowhere, five hours north of Toronto, I don't know, in the middle of the woods and uh, in a house that was off the grid and really interesting. And I tell him the story and he says, yeah, let me think about it. Uh, hey man, it's too late to leave now, it's late at night, you can sleep over there on the floor there and uh, we'll t I'll make you breakfast, how's that? It's like, okay, cool. So the next morning I'm there with Gary Farmer and he's like, yeah, so I thought about your story and, you know, well, let's do it. So I'm like, all right, so I get in my rental car. It takes me a day to get home, you know. But it made me love Gary Farmer even more. That That's just what he's like, you know, and uh, he is like nobody. And this thing about Pirandello, you know, I don't want to kill them. I was so sad that nobody gets killed in the end of this film that I brought him back in Ghost Dog briefly. You know, I brought him back in another century because I didn't want to believe he was gone, you know? And I saw him recently, and he's like, so when am I going to reappear? And I, I said, you know, I didn't put you in this film I have that's just coming out now. And he said, I know you didn't. And you know what? That's fucked up. <laughs> so I said, you know, it is kind of fucked up, Gary. I got to think about it, man, you know. He's like, all right, well, you know, I'm still here, so, you know. But he's just, I love that man so much. And, and Johnny Depp for, wrote this for him and really, he was it's so amazing to have him be a kind of blank piece of white paper to, you can write all over, you know? And uh, another incredible character that I, I dearly love, uh, Johnny Depp and what he, what he gave to the film. I had trouble with him personally while making the film. Um, we were friends, I had trouble, and I realized why. He was reading a, a biography of Marlon Brando, who's like, you know, always be adversarial to the director. The director is a piece of shit, you know? <laughs> so Johnny, his idol, he was acting like Marlon Brando. I was gonna kill him, but we've talked about it since, and, uh, and he was there for the film and did gave beautiful things to the film. But, you know, I'm going to take that book and, like, rip it to shreds and burn it. In. <laughs> Fucking Marlon Brando, you know. The uh, question is, how much rehearsal and Im improv um, happened in this um, film? It completely varies uh, by the actors themselves. To me, there's not a one way to work with actors. There's one way for any one director to work with any one actor. So generally, I do not rehearse what's in the script. I love to rehearse scenes that I make up so on the spot often so that the actors can be in character um, and can learn to react as that character. But all actors are different. For example, when I tried to change a line for Robert Mitchum, I just wanted to invert 
two lines, and I went to his trailer, and his friend, his kind of minder that was with him, said, wait a minute, you're going to change a line on Robert Mitchum? He doesn't change the lines, you know? And I said, I know he doesn't improvise. No, no, I'm not saying improvise. I'm saying he does not change the line. And I said, well, I just need to talk to him. Okay, go ahead. Good luck to you. <laughs> so I go in there, and Mitchum says to me, I said, I want to flip these two lines. I'm really sorry to do this to you. And he said, wait a minute. You just said you're really sorry to do this to me. Isn't that what they said to Gary Gilmore? <laughs> and so I was up against these kind of characters, you know. And then I had someone like Michael Wincott, a great actor who does not, he only improvises, right? So I'd, I'd say, okay, in this scene, you know, Michael, you guys are riding through this forest and it's getting dark out and I need some dialogue about the darkness. And he said, okay, okay, give me a second. And he walks away and he's walking around in the woods and he comes back and says, okay, I got it, I got it. What is it? You'll see. Okay, and we roll the film, and he says some beautiful thing about, aren't you glad that it gets dark out kind of gradually? Because what if it just went out all just all of a sudden and scared the bejesus out of you, man? But I didn't know what he was going to do exactly. So I just, I just had so much fun with these people. And with, I got to say, with um, Billy Bob and, and Iggy Pop and Jared Harris, was so much fun, and those guys really created that scene. I mean, we, we went in a trailer and wrote the dialogue, but they were hilarious looking up, you know, how many times in the Bible do you think they call people Philistines, man? I love that. We got to use that, you know, this kind of thing. They were just fantastic, and Billy Bob's reaction, like, getting shot, and like, you shot me. You fucking shot me. It burns like hellfire, you know, this kind of stuff they did was... Just, I was so lucky to have these amazing people to play with, you know. Question is about your secret society, um, you know, the Sons of Lee Marvin. No. Yes. No. Okay. Yes. Uh, we're still active. Yes. That's really all okay. I can tell. It's still a secret society. Yes. I okay. can't really. All right. Talk Moving on. Let's. Sorry. Yes. Question is about the, the Native American uh, response to this film. Have you talked to audiences? Uh, yeah, I have a lot, and you know, there's not. It's not. It's a bit general. I mean, some like the film very much, others less. Um, different tastes. It's a very diverse group of people. Very, you know, complex people. Um, so I. But I've had some very beautiful things to the extent of. Uh, going to a Native American film festival in uh, New Mexico where they had a, a wall with photos of all the guests and I was the only non-Aboriginal, uh, non-Native American person there and I was really honored. And then um, a bunch of guys told me, okay, tonight we're gonna give you your, you know, your, your name, we'll give you a new name. And so I, they gave me the name of Silent Snow Wolf. And, uh, so, and I was very honored. So I, I've had very amazing experiences. Um, but you know, it's, you know, people have different tastes. But in general, um, I had very positive feedback from Native American viewers of the film. Advice for young writer-directors. 
Wow, that's so general. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I'm not real good at, uh, I'm not a teacher, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out how to do it myself. So my, my advice is really to really follow your instincts and stay true to yourself and listen to yourself. And, you know, listen, choose good collaborators and know that film is collaborative. Um, but also, you know, the, the, the director, writer is a kind of navigator of the ship that makes, kind of guides where it goes. But they don't, you don't sail the ship by yourself, you know? So you work with a lot of amazing people. Try to get the best people you can to, to work with and try to hold on to your vision as best, as best you can. Hold on to your pants, man. This question was about Jarmusch's working relationship with Robbie Mueller. Yeah, Robbie Mueller, I learned so much from this man about filmmaking, but about a lot of things in life in general, and about light, and about recording things, and about fi capturing things in the moment, and about trusting instincts. And uh, Robbie and I had a really wonderful way of working, um, no, sh no storyboard. Um, a shot list only if really necessary for ourselves. Um, I still don't like making a shot list each day when I'm working. Uh, it, Robbie's idea was very, is about instincts and trusting your instinct and your intuition. And Robbie would always say things like, oh, of course we can plan everything in advance and then when we go to that location, it's a different time of day. The light is different. The clouds are different. So why, are, why would we cling to the idea we had previously? We must always be on our feet. Think on your feet. And we did a lot of interesting things while scouting for this film together, which was we'd find the most dramatic, incredibly beautiful landscape you could imagine, and then we would turn our backs on it and film the other way. And this is something Robbie was like, look how magnificent that is. We've seen it in a fucking calendar. Let's look over there. It's a small tree and a rock. Very sad and emotional, you know? <laughs> so we would film that instead. And this is just one example of, of a kind of way that Robbie thinks. And I learned so much from him thinking that way. So don't look for the obvious. Always keep your eyes open. Keep thinking on your feet. A film is... Shooting a film is a, pr is a process, and you don't know, you can't control everything in the process, so be open. Another thing Robbie taught me was like, uh, okay, you're shooting a scene, and, scene, and suddenly it, we're outside and it starts raining, and most crews is, would say, well, this scene doesn't take place in the rain, so let's pack up and we'll have to stop for today. And Robbie would be, huh, wonder what it'd be like if the scene's in the rain. Maybe it's much better. Or, well, Robbie, we already shot some of it. Okay, well, think of some dialogue where they can say it's about to rain. Or, you know, <laughs> like keep thinking, keep thinking. Don't be set in your, in your script. It's something that came to, um, from Nick Ray who said, uh, if you're just gonna shoot the script, then why bother? And this is something like Robbie also instilled in me. And Robbie Mueller is a kind of brilliant uh, man who's a very rebellious teenager in part of his spirit, and yet an incredibly technically gifted person. So he, I'm always astounded by directors of photography in a way because they have 
what Gary Farmer would say, oh, they got one f each foot in a different canoe. <laughs> and that is like to say that Robbie Mueller has an incredible scientific technical mind, and yet a completely aesthetic mind. And this is true of Fred Elms, too, another very strange man. But these people, you know, they do have each foot in a different canoe, and me, I'm not like that. I'm, all, I'm in one canoe, you know? So I'm really amazed by these kind of people. But Robbie Mueller, he's like my, my family, my brother, my teacher, someone, I don't know. I wouldn't even be here without Robbie Mueller. I don't know how to explain it, but the guy is so important to me and in my life and taught me so many things. Why he even was shooting films with me, I don't know why, you know? But I tricked him into it. I gave him some really good weed. All right, it I think that's a, that's a good final note. Yes, um, <laughs> so, but... Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>